welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So Joe, one of the themes that I think has been popping up quite a bit on recent episodes is this idea of, this sounds really trite, but opportunity in crisis, or this idea that we're facing big, big economic devastation, but maybe there's some sort of hidden opportunity or even very obvious opportunity to remake the economic system or improve the financial system at the same time. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I yeah, I think that that has been a theme and this idea that there are a lot of policies and we've sort of talked a lot about fiscal policies or monetary policy, but there's all kinds of trends mm. that have been going in one direction and people are questioning, have they reached their endpoint as a society, as an economy, do we need to make some sort of like meaningful turn in a different direction? Right. And times of crises tend to be when we also see new innovations uh, mm -hmm. in the market specifically. And um, I'm, I'm thinking about one in particular back in the 1990s, immediately after the savings and loan crisis, there was a shortage of capital going into commercial real estate. Fast forward a few years and someone invented commercial mortgage-backed securities to kind of take care of that problem. Now, today, we've been discussing already the intense pain facing the commercial real estate sector at the moment. The question is, is this going to lead to some sort of innovation or is it going to present some sort of opportunity to revisit the system as a whole? There are different types and different degrees of changes that could come about because of what we're seeing happen right now. Wait, you want to hear an interesting commercial real estate uh, data point? <laughs> Go on. You're back in New York, aren't you? I'm in the office. I'm not only I'm not only back in New York. Uh, you're going to be brimming brimming with commercial real estate anecdotes now, aren't you? So I'm literally in commercial real estate as we speak after several months of recording <laughs> the podcast uh, from a bedroom. So maybe it was all maybe it was all overhyped. Maybe everything's going back to normal. But no, I don't know. It's not it's definitely not normal by any stretch here in New York. It's definitely not uh, normal by any stretch here in the office. And it's really unclear whether uh, whether there will be a return to normal at all. Yeah. Okay, well, on this episode, we're going to be digging more into the state of the commercial real estate industry. We we touched upon it a little bit uh, when we were talking about REITs the other day, but now we're going to go in depth with a really, really special guest. I'm thrilled to say that uh, on today's episode, we have Ethan Penner, who is widely credited as being the father of CMBS or the guy that created it, uh, as I mentioned, back in the 1990s. He's currently the uh, founder and managing partner of Mosaic Real Estate Partners. So, Ethan, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. So, Ethan, I'm really curious. Could you, um, could you maybe start out by describing the problems as you saw it in commercial real estate in the early 1990s when, when you were first thinking about the CMBS structure, the CMBS product? What was the issue that you were trying to solve? And how much of that do you see paralleled in the current situation today? Well, it's not really paralleled at all at this point. I say the situation that existed uh, in the early 90s that moved me to kind of bring about the CMBS industry or CMBS solution was a very unique situation where kind of all the lenders who had 
serviced the real estate industry abandoned the industry all at once. And so the industry, which is, you probably know this, but real estate is the most dependent upon debt financing of all industries. And so here you had an industry that uh, had its line cut off, uh, essentially. And it's an industry that is financed, not only acquisitions, of course, with heavy debt, but the debt itself is structured so that there's very little amortization and loans mature on a regular basis and need to be refinanced. And so borrowers were finding themselves uh, in the early 90s with loans scheduled to mature and their existing lenders telling them, uh, regardless of how well the loans were performing or the underlying properties, that they didn't have an interest in refinancing those loans. And they might give some short extension, but the borrower needed to find a way to repay them. And so the industry was facing a tremendous crisis, an existential crisis for many borrowers. And I saw that and uh, realized that the securities markets, the bond buyer uh, who had come to finance other asset types, primarily single-family uh, mortgages, but but other types of assets through the securitization process that had kind of grown significantly through the 80s and that I had been a part of was a very well-suited place to turn to to fill this massive need. Uh, and from that, CMBS was born. I mean, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of work, a lot of um, mostly convincing, actually. You know, when you create something new, even though it's needed, there's a certain constituent that feel threatened by anything new. And so getting kind of the necessary buy-in is really the challenge when you introduce new concepts. And it was a great experience for me, not without its pains and scars, but it was certainly well worth it. Can you just explain real quickly what it was about the uh, conditions that caused the traditional real estate lenders to pull back from the market? Sure. Well, real estate prior to this period, this early 90s period, was an, uh, even though it's a very large financial asset, it was a financial asset that was pretty much untethered to the rest of the financial or capital markets. It was a business that kind of happened entirely in the private sector. So there was no public market participation in real estate. There were really no REITs to speak of and there was no capital market participation in the equity or the debt financing real estate. It was largely financed on the debt side by banks and insurance companies. And in a very, I would say, backwards way, to tell you the truth, without being tethered to the public markets, uh, it was also being done without, what I'll say, traditional financial governance. So relative value didn't play a part in things. And Pricing was oftentimes bizarre. Uh, credit decisions were also kind of wacky. In fact, uh, you know, there was a time when for a lot of the kind of wealthiest old American real estate families gained their wealth through the benefit of getting 100% or more lo a loan to cost. So they were able to borrow the totality of the cost of building a project, if not more. And, uh, and have all the upside from putting up no money themselves. That formula tends to create great wealth, and it did for many of the legendary names in real estate. The big problem that led to the crisis was that all the lenders 
were regulated lenders, right? Insurance companies and banks for this part. And regulators tend to react in a herd-like fashion to especially market crises. And so the, the late 80s, uh, early 90s was a period that was really a, a very deep economic recession and it centered around real estate because in the prior years, real estate had benefited from an immense amount, the bubble amount of capital that drove prices to ridiculous levels. And as the bubble started to burst and people started to kind of withdraw or try to sell, the unwinding was quite dramatic. You know, losses tend to communicate to regulators risk, right? Losses are equal to risk and regulators react to risk by uh, telling their constituents to stop doing whatever they feel is risky, realizing that doing so actually enhances the losses and the risk. It's kind of a perverse uh, system. In fact, regulated lending, we could talk about that separately because it's one of the one of the biggest problems, I think, in all of finance, regulatory driven lending and regulated lending create its own set of cyclical problems, the likes of which we've seen and I think we're likely to see again. So this kind of uh, lemming-like reaction to regulation created this uh, entire uh, industry to be abandoned and, uh, and it created this, this need that I was able to help build. So today we have um, a big chunk of the commercial real estate industry financed through the private market, through investors who are buying CMBS. We still have lots of bank loans, but there is a chunk of it in private investor hands. How has that changed the dynamics, if at all, or how does it impact the dynamics when we see a commercial real estate crisis such as the one we're in now? Well, CMBS was born to deliver capital to a capital-starved, desperate industry. It was not born perfect, okay? And so its imperfections or its flaws, like all systems, are revealed most uh, dramatically when things are tough, when times are tough and there's challenges like downturns, like the 08, 09, financial crisis and i think like today but it's true of all loans by the way like when when times are good they're, they're never problems like borrowers pay their lenders on time and then when loans come due borrowers pay their lenders off and uh, and lenders are very happy and everyone's happy it's only when that doesn't work out when times are tough and uh, borrowers can't make their loan payments on time or can't make their loan repayments on time at, at maturity. You have stresses in the lending business. And uh, so not surprisingly, uh, CMBS, its problems always crop up uh, and, it's, and the shortcomings become obvious in these challenge times. And fundamental kind of unique aspects that I think maybe you're alluding to that's worth mentioning with regards to CMBS's kind of what I'll call uh, endemic flaws, the ones that are, that are, I think, germane today most have to do with, I would say, two realities. 
One is typical of bond market financing. So it's not unique to CMBS. I would say it's true for any bond market financing. Let's pretend that you, you have two different lending constructs. One where you're a borrower and you borrow from me and I loan you money and you put up something as collateral, whatever that something is, okay? And now you're calling me and telling me that you can't make your payments on time or you can't repay your loan. I'm your lender and I have your loan and I could have a conversation with you and determine what's, what's the right way to go forward. You know, is this a temporary downturn? Are you valuable to the collateral, like keeping you involved in collateral? Is that a good thing for the collateral's value or not? We can make rational decisions together. And I have staying power because I have your loan and you don't have staying power because you owe me now money. And we could, I could trade staying power for economics with you. I could do things that are whatever needs to be done. I could take over the collateral and kick you out if I needed to and contract would allow me to do that. And if that was the best thing to protect my investors, well, then I should be prepared to do that. Bond market financing doesn't actually allow for that because, as you probably know, whether it's a corporate bond construct or a commercial mortgage-backed securities construct, bond market lending really involves fragmented ownerships of that loan, right? It's taking that loan that was originated by one party, let's say it was me, and then picking it up into many little pieces and selling it to people all over the world. And none of those people have enough control of the loan to actually have a conversation with you, the borrower, when you need to have a conversation. So the problem, number one, is you don't have anyone who owns the loan to have a reasonable conversation and even make an appeal to that maybe the loan needs to be restructured. That's in the best interest of the lender and the borrower and the collateral, but there's no one to really talk to. Okay, that's problem number one in bond financing. Problem number two is that because the loan ownership is so fragmented, there is no lender per se to actually act in a lender's best interest, which is oftentimes in times that are troubled, to actually protect the lender's downside and take over the collateral and, and control it and, and operate it to the best of the lender's ability. But because the, there's no one lender in control, there's no one really to do that. In CMBS, there was a there is a something called a special servicer, right? And the special servicer is theoretically the bondholder's representative in this process, the one who uh, is supposed to speak on behalf of all the bondholders and make decisions with regards to workouts and restructurings and foreclosures on behalf of all the bondholders. But there are a couple of problems. Number one, the special servicer is typically special servicer for um, hundreds, if not thousands of loans. And during good times, very few of those loans are in trouble. And so they don't really need to run a big staff to handle the few loans that are in trouble. And they don't because they don't actually get to charge servicing fees to the bond holders and to the trust that the bondholders are invested in until and unless loans go in to uh, problems uh, status. So they're not paid to maintain a regular staff to handle 
big volume of problem loans as happens in times that are tough, like today or in the great financial crisis. So, so they're just not stuck for it, first of all. Second of all, uh, and then they have to play catch up because they have to quickly bring on staff. But how do you find an amount of talented people who can quickly address the needs of a, of a borrower base that's in desperate straits and needs someone to, who can make decisions quickly? It's not really possible. The second problem is that the special servicer is also typically paid a fee stream when a loan becomes problematic and for as long as it remains unresolved. So, so they actually have a financial incentive to not resolve problems quickly, which is antagonistic, of course, to the senior bondholders who accepted a very low rate of return for their low risk position. Uh, and now they're kind of hanging out longer than they want to hang out and longer than they probably should be hanging out. The special servicer is almost always the owner of the junior most interest of the CMBS bond structure. And so for them, a quick resolution that locks in losses is a, is literally money out of their pocket. And so so they have the further incentive to drag resolutions on for as long as possible in the hope that markets recover, they can avoid locking in losses. So there's all kinds of uh, intricate conflicts of interest built into the, the whole structure and uh, it's imperfect, let's put it that way, in its current form. It's unfair to throw CMBS under the bus because so much of what I just said that was problematic about CMBS is also problematic in the corporate bond world, where ownership of loans in bond form is fragmented. And, uh, you know, one can make a reasonable case that buying debt in bond form is a bad deal. When you're a debt investor, you don't have any share of the upside. All you have is a best case, get your money back and your coupon interest. Best case. And, uh, and if things don't happen as planned, it gets worse from there, right? So owning that loan in fragmented form called bond form, you've given up your ability to actually enforce your lien, to protect yourself when you need protection, uh, which is why in my firm, you know, the construct at Mosaic, we, we're able to own bonds and we're able to own loans in this kind of debt fund that we run, I, I never would buy a bond unless it was extremely cheap and being distressed prices. Uh, and it's sad that they are because distressed debt, the whole concept of distressed debt and the opportunities that arise from distressed debt are the kind of flip side of the same coin of the flawed structure that creates the opportunity for distressed debt, right? Where people just throw their hands up that own these fragmented ownership of loans in bond form and say, well, I can't enforce my, my lien. I just want out of this thing. And then the, I just want out of this thing translates into too deep of a discount relative to the credit. And, and it creates huge opportunities for opportunists. Uh, so I think the bond format kind of creates distressed debt opportunities. It's an interesting phenomenon. It needn't be that way, but it is that way because of the way bonds work. So given that it takes 
a lot of time to renegotiate leases. And, and given the dynamics and different incentives that you just described, such as the idea that special servicers might be overwhelmed with the number of troubled loans they're having to take care of at the moment, what does that mean for valuations? Like, how long will valuation resets actually take in commercial real estate now versus previous real estate crises? We're in uncharted territories in much of uh, the commercial real estate market today. And there is no real basis for, for many assets for even taking wild guesses on valuation. Valuation really comes from, at the very beginning, the question of viability. And to me, the word viability, when I apply it to real estate, is very simply, do human beings want to be there? Okay, wherever there is, like, you know, you have a nice office building goes in right now. And the question is, will human beings want to actually go to the office in that location? Well, it was the answer before March seemed to be unquestionably yes. But even for a wonderful building like the one Joe's sitting in right now, it's certainly less certain than an absolute yes. And so without knowing kind of viability, it's really it's really impossible to uh, to kind of arrive at value today. I think much of commercial real estate today, I would say, it's nearly impossible to establish values for a lot of commercial real estate today. And we just have to see how the world plays out a little bit more. But the other the other part of valuation, also timing. So you can say, well, maybe the, that building is going to be viable. But maybe it's going to take two years before it returns to its prior normal operating level. Well, then you have to discount cash flows that are suboptimal for two years and deduct kind of whatever shortfall there is from the valuation. So timing and, and absolute viability are so uncertain today that it would, be, uh, it would just be more gambling than investing to try to kind of decide a value. So... I loved your sort of description about the tensions and conflicts of interest that emerge uh, from the bond or the CMBS uh, structure and the difficulty that arises. So practically speaking, right now in New York, obviously, there are all kinds of issues. There's questions about office buildings. There's questions about areas that are retail and uh, very tourist dominated. And as you say, we really just we're just guessing at this point because we really don't know what the future looks like. We don't know when there will be a vaccine and so forth. How does the tension that you described, how is it playing out right now as retailers try to renegotiate with landlords and landlords try to renegotiate with lenders? What is the discussion and the, uh, the tension, what's happening right now in those rooms? Well, I've not been privy to those rooms myself. So again, I'd be just reporting secondhand to you from what I see and how things are playing out and how I, knowing some of the players, how I would imagine they're handling it. But it's not fun for anybody. You're talking about retail real estate, which is the most uncertain of all. You know, you've got retail, you've got office, hotels to a certain extent are the three areas where you've got the greatest uncertainty in that order, I would imagine. And, in, and as it pertains to retail real estate, there's existential issues that retailers themselves are facing. So, you know, I think uh, it, it'll 
there will be some lawyers who do very well in this process because I think that you're going to see heightened litigation. You'll see bankruptcy lawyers doing very well. And I think a lot of it will be centered around retail. The counterbalance so far is that kind of historically easy monetary policy. And that's playing out not just with historically low interest rates, but also directives straight from the Fed to the banking community to be kind to borrowers and, uh, and not press them. You know, the old me might have not been too happy about that because I'm a fairly strong free market advocate. But I actually think it's, uh, it's the prudent thing to do. You know, the system itself is so fragile today, I'd say historically fragile, that uh, it's the wise thing to do and is creating whatever modicum of stability that allows us to kind of breathe as easy as we can be breathing today, considering how grave the crisis we're facing is. Um, there was some talk earlier this year, um, sort of in the depths of the crisis, of potentially seeing a CMBS or CRE bailout of some sort. What do you think about that idea? Does does the idea of being um, nice to borrowers extend all the way to uh, to bailout? I don't think so. You know, I actually wrote a piece that was picked up by some, some of your folks at Bloomberg, and the government can't bail everybody out. I think, and it should not. I think that uh, it needs, you know, in times like this, we need to make sure that the people who are most fragile, most vulnerable, and whose basic needs they're not able to attend to, that they that their needs can be attended to. So that's where I think the bandwidth of government largesse must be must be spent. I don't think. Um, Having that largesse run through the hands of corporate entities or wealthy individuals makes any sense at all. It, it just so we have a fine legal system in this country that allows for bankruptcies to resolve issues, and that allows for loan foreclosures to resolve issues, and uh, new owners can come in. I, I don't. I don't think that. That's not the way the world should work. Um, I'm pretty adamant that actually. I just want to go back to a question you were talking about this extraordinary moment of uncertainty in the valuation of this real estate. Is there a market for it? Is there even a bid-ask spread right now if someone wanted to come in and make a bid for a big uh, you know, commercial real estate location? Does that market exist or is it just basically no one selling because no one has any idea? I think that there's, there is a market. There's a fairly big gap between where sellers would like to sell and where buyers would like to buy. I think that there, I don't necessarily think there should be a market though, as I said before, for many assets, because I think uncertainty is very high. But I think that there is money burning a hole through people's pockets and it's not their money. It's money they charge fees on. So that's part of the, part of the interesting phenomenon of how money is managed and is invested in this world, not just in real estate, but it's typically invested. It's 
money is kind of pooled as it is in pools that I manage and invested by people like myself who get paid to, to manage the money. So money also sometimes comes with final maturity dates where if it's not invested by a certain time, it needs to be sent back to its original owner. So that creates an impetus to invest, okay? Uh, so as to lock in the fee associated with managing that money rather than return it to its investor uninvested. So there is a lot of money organized today that is sitting and waiting and wants to invest and, uh, and managers who want to invest it. And I think that there's the tug of war between being imprudent and investing. At, uh, I think sellers would like to get near March prices. And I think buyers kind of would feel very bad if they didn't get at least uh, for real estate today in the retail sector or the office sector, at least a 20% and hotels 20% or more down to March pricing. And, and I would argue they deserve more because uncertainty is so high. So I think that there is a market. There's been very little that's transacted again because on the seller side, there's been kind of an abeyance of pressure from the lending community really directly resulted from the Fed's policies. And I think you've seen very little selling. There was a big office building in downtown LA that sold at uh, one, what I think one would characterize at a 20%, maybe 25% below what it might have been worth six months ago. That was about it. There's been very little and there's very little activity for the reasons I mentioned so far. You mentioned the role of the Fed just then. And of course, we know that the central bank is acting as a backstop for a whole bunch of um, different assets at the moment. I, I'm wondering, given the Fed is there and the Fed is the backstop, in, in what situation would we ever see CRE credit spreads blowing out again? When you say CRE spreads, so there's, there's uh, CMBS, which has almost, I would say, a very bifurcated world in the sense that there's the senior most bonds, which are AAA rated, which I think are reasonable credits and have held up over cycles before. And those tend to blow out at the very beginning with everything because when liquidity tightens, when liquidity tightens up, it affects everything. And then uh, the AAA spreads tend to snap back, and and it turns out to have been a very good trade if you could if you could put, buy some and enough, enough trades to make it a big trade for anybody. And that happened here. So like AAA spreads, which had been sub certainly sub one hundred, spread and widened out to three twenty, and it was you know it was a great and obvious trade. Not too many sellers sold at three twenty, and therefore not too many buyers bought, but. It was obvious it was going to snap back and it has snapped back to some hundred again. The more junior classes where there's concentrated credit risk, they're still pretty wide. And I think deservedly so. I wouldn't touch them with a 10-foot pole. You're taking a concentrated credit risk with tremendous exposure to retail and office and hotel properties around the country. And uh and no ability to really enforce your lien because of this fragmented ownership and bond form. So I think I'd be surprised if those tightened anytime soon. Over time, if things heal, they will tighten because there's money to invest and the money will push spreads tighter. Money flows determine pricing more than anything else. 
more than credit worthiness. On the loan side, it's more of an on-off thing. I think that uh, there's no real loan money to speak of available for office and retail today uh, and hotel, very little. So there's just not a lot getting done. So I don't know if spreads are wider, just money's not very available. Spreads are a little wider as a result when you have to get something done, for sure spreads are wider on the loan side by a good 100 basis points, maybe, maybe even a little more. Looking forward, this is where I think going back to something we talked about it earlier, which is the tie-in of everything, everything. So if you look at the gigantic debt government runs, and not just federal government, but uh, state and local governments, and the fiscal imbalances that exist in this country, uh, I often wonder how much of bank balance sheets will ultimately be co-opted to buy that debt. Uh, if that happens, and I suspect it will, you know, there was a time in America when bank balance sheets were more than 40% government debt in, in recent past in, in the single digits. So if I'm right and bank balance sheets become the haven kind of to store uh, low rate government debt because there's no real market bid for that uh, any near the yields that make sense kind of fiscally, then that crowds the bank out for seeing a lot of the private sector, which pushes it into private funds financing. And the rate that private funds want is going to be substantially higher than where benchmarks like government bonds trade, which is where benchmarks typically are. So spreads to governments for credit could widen dramatically over the next I would say decade. I would not be surprised if that was a trend that we saw over the next decade for the reason I mentioned. Let's, I'm curious about, uh, you know, the sort of knock-on effects. Like, let's say some of these assets really do, they don't bounce back for years. Prime uh, re- real estate and hotels and offices in big cities like New York and other Chicago and elsewhere. What are the then uh, follow-on effects? Like, what is the, who are the pools of owners of this debt and what does it do to them if they really have to take uh, in the end sort of massive marks down markdowns on uh, their holding? It's going to be very exciting to see that play out because they're clearly, if, you know, one would suggest they're, they're clearly going to be big losses that have to be borne by someone, you know, some group of someone. And there's always been a tug of war as to the allocation of those losses between the equity owner of property and their lender. It's, a, it's, an, it's an old kind of tradition in real estate. When, uh, when things go well, the property creates sufficient cash flow to pay the lender and repay the lender you know, when the loan matures. But when things don't go well, the borrower calls the lender and says, we've got a problem. <laughs> you know, instead of I've got a problem, we've got a problem. How are we going to fix it? Uh, of course, the way it's supposed to be is the borrower is supposed to lose everything because the lender has taken this safer position in lieu of upside. But again, as I go back to because most lenders, uh, even whole owned lenders like banks, are just not set up to own property. There's been a long tradition in real estate where when things don't go well, 
the lender recreates value or economic value uh, because they don't have the will or the capacity to enforce their lien and, and take the borrower out. And so lenders do lose money when they don't necessarily, you wouldn't think they should because of the hierarchy of the capital structure. Uh, so how that all plays out will be very interesting to watch, but unquestionably, there are losses in the system. Um, I have a sort of big picture question for you, and I know you like to um, to think about these, and I've, I've seen some of your recent blog postings, but when you look at the economic crisis uh, of 2020, what role do you see there for the federal government? What should they be doing to um, to cushion the blow, if if anything? Uh, as I said earlier, I'm a, a big free market advocate, but I'm also uh, a person who's living my eyes open and realizing the realities of the situation we're facing. I think we're we're too far gone to be a, have a libertarian laissez-faire approach to things. You know, that worked, by the way, in you know, the, the early 90s when CMBS was created. That was a time when the government largely had a laissez-faire approach and, and closed a lot of financial institutions and liquidated their assets when they didn't have enough regulatory capital. They actually took a harsh stance and a, and a non- kind of savior stance to the world. The 08 response changed everything. And I would say the 08 response was gravely mistaken, but it created, and I knew it would, and I wrote at the time, it created um, a dependence mentality upon the Fed and upon the government to save us from pain and suffering. And once that precedent was set in 08, there's never going to be turning back. And so it's too late. We, we've been running around with uh, this crutch of dependence uh, for so long that our legs don't work anymore. As a society, we can't run around without the crutch. And so bad behavior, running up massive debts and, uh, and, and unsustainable fiscal imbalances has been the natural byproduct of 0809. And now as a society, uh, and I say us, it's global, it's not just America, we're in an impossible position. And no, no one can really predict exactly where things are going. I have my opinions, but, but I don't think the government can walk away uh, because government kind of exists to help a society avoid anarchy. And I think we're at the we're as close to anarchy uh, as we've ever been in modern times. I think we're in a depression. So I'll tell you this, I think that we're in a depression like the 1930s, but the difference between the 1930s and now is the federal government's response, right? In the 1930s, there was no response. So nobody got helped. The banks were allowed to fail. Everything was allowed to kind of go, uh, go under. And where there were bread lines and there was massive homelessness. Today, you have massive government response, right? And so the massive government response is masking over some of the natural symptoms of the depression. And you know what? Uh, it's hard for someone libertarian leaning to say this. It's the only right choice. There is no other choice. 
and we're just going to have to get used to it. Those of us who are grew up lovers of the free market, we're just going to have to suck it up and just say, this is, this is the new world that we're living in, and it's not going to change and can't change. I'm curious. So, you know, thinking back in 2008, 2009, that was truly a national crisis. And it basically hit everywhere at the same time and arguably to the same severity. This time, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm in New York and obviously uh, people think it's going to be pretty bleak here for a while. But I was just in Austin, Texas for a while and people are, this is booming and a lot of people are moving there. And so I'm curious how you see the sort of bifurcation of the economy where it's not just not necessarily a national recession or a national depression, but a simultaneous boom in one place, boom in some real estate markets, boom in some office markets, and a crash in others. That, that is a very accurate assessment of the way things are right now, which makes it very, very interesting in the sense that uh, there are definitely going to be winners and losers, right? And, and that's, you know... It's not fun for the losers, but it's fun for the people who like to play the game and think they're capable of winning. So, you know, when you talk about real estate, when you talk about anything related to the economy, and when you talk even about societal constructs, there's a massive competition going on right now for all those things. And you just described it very well. And it's going to be, it's going to be something to behold. So you just sort of describe the challenge. I mean, A, we've had this extraordinary uh, government response uh, so far. We'll see what further is going to come. But you also sort of describe this sort of sense of anarchy. Does that exacerbate it, the fact that different parts of the country are experiencing this moment so differently? I think that what's likely to occur is rational. Rational things will occur, meaning investors Companies will go to places that they feel uh, can deliver uh, things that benefit companies and the and their constituents, primarily their employees. Right. So companies will move from places where perhaps physical safety is not as uh, not as certain, or fiscal imbalances create a need for higher taxation, and they're going to move to places where. Physical safety is perceived to be better and taxation lighter. And uh, that's true for employers and it's true for the wealthiest of the communities who pay a lot of the taxes. As you know, New York, uh, 50% of its budget is paid for by 1% of the taxpayers. So that creates this downward spiral. It's very, very hard to undo. And, uh, and then a very bullish spiral for the kind of recipients of these movers and these states that people are coming to. So that's how that ultimately plays out because if you play it out to its logical conclusion, you're gonna have dystopian cities around this country uh, and it's gonna be really, uh, really weird. And the federal government is have to make a decision, I think about what is the United States, right? I mean, there's there's some really big questions that really have never been asked for a couple hundred years in this country that will need to be asked if this plays out the way I think it will play out. Okay, well, Ethan, we'll have to have you back on, I, I guess, in a, a few years' time to see how this all shakes out and talk about it some more. But um, Ethan Penner, thank you so much for being on All Thoughts. Really appreciate it. Yeah, that was great, Ethan. Really Pleasure. Great. Thank you. 
So, Joe, are you uh, looking forward to your uh, dystopian city future in New York? I, I am. You know what? I took a walk yesterday, uh, sort of my first day, sort of really uh, exploring because I was doing my required two weeks quarantine. And I don't know. It didn't feel I don't know. I was not as alarmed as uh, as other people were by the state of the uh, by the state of the city. There weren't like people driving around in weird trucks and wearing like <laughs> masks and stuff like Mad Max and flowing no, flamethrowers. No, I'm like, no, no okay. I just think people on the news and blogs like talk about what a dystopian anarchy is in New York. Mostly it just sort of seemed kind of quiet. Okay. Yeah. That's not quite anarchy, is it? No. Um, all right. Well, I really enjoyed that conversation with Ethan. Um, it was great to talk to someone who invented uh, CMBS, obviously. But beyond that, I, one thing that I always find fascinating in all these conversations about real estate is the the mechanics of it yeah. and the different incentives of all the players involved. And I thought he laid those out really well when it came to uh, CMBS, the difference between traditional lending yeah. versus having a group of private bondholders, and also the interests of the special servicers. That was great. That was really interesting, and I hadn't thought about that at all. And it's it also seems it's, it's extremely important to sort of have a feel for all these different incentives right now because of this sort of requirement, at least in the short and medium term, that um, you know the tenants, the underlying tenants, be given some sort of break, right? Because if a bunch of stores were to just completely board up and go out of business, then that could you know, crush a neighborhood for a long time. Whereas if they're allowed to hang on for four months or six months or maybe even a year as we get a vaccine and life returns to something resembling normal, that maybe they can open up and some sort of normalcy can exist. But everyone in that chain has some sort of incentive and do landlords hold out for uh, maximum uh, rents? And can the landlords renegotiate with the lenders so that they have time to give their uh, tenants a break? There's sort of all kinds of complications just to get through what is going to be an extremely uh, complicated time. Absolutely. And again, it kind of makes you, well, you asked about price discovery in this market, and it really makes you think about how much of that is going on given yeah. the timelines involved and given the, the fact that a, a lot of transactions just aren't happening at the moment. Shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. All right. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me at The Stalwart. And follow our producer, Laura Carlson, at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>